Morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter eight. Today we are continuing our study through this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, our Lord, and we are in Matthew eight. The title of our message today is Jesus's authority over nature. His authority over this material world. Now, Romans 1, verse 20, tells us that through everything God made, uh, through this material world all around us, this universe, we can see God's divine, his eternal power. I'm not very good at science or studying natural things in the universe and all that kind of stuff, but I really enjoy those scientific facts that blow your mind and tell you something about the universe that's incredible. And so I have a few for you here that I think are interesting. The furthest galaxy we have ever observed away, the furthest away that we've observed by the Hubble telescope is 13.4 billion light years away. So that's five with a bunch of, with like 12 zeros after it is just one light year. So five with 12 zeros, however many that is, bajillions of miles, and you take that times 13, that's how far away it is. How far away is that? Really far away. Can I just say that, is that good enough? I can tell you this, I looked it up. If you had Captain Picard's Starship Enterprise and you were traveling at warp nine, it would take you a mere three days to get there. If you had Han Solo's Millennium Falcon, you could make it in less than 18 minutes. But all we've been able to do, the furthest we've ever sent something out, is Voyager 1. It has traveled in 45 years a mere 14 billion miles. Sounds far, but is like a scratch in trying to get a light year away. We can see 13.4 billion light years away, and yet we know we can, we're not even beginning to see close to the edge of the known universe. Where is the edge? We don't know. Is there an edge? We don't know. It just goes. Or here's another one. Did you know, or do you know, how fast the earth spins. It's about a thousand miles an hour. No, yeah, an hour, a thousand miles an hour. That's how fast we're all going right now. A thousand miles an hour. You're so fast, just sitting there. Did you also know that the same moment we are careening around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. And did you further know that our whole solar system is spinning around the center of our galaxy at a dizzying 490,000 miles an hour? So we're, I don't know, we're like a tornado, we're like this massive storm moving at three speeds as you just sit there. Way to go, good job. 
What makes us move like this? Where does all this energy come from? How is it that, where's the fuel for all this movement and power, these galactic things moving around at such incredible energies? And did you also know that the female codfish can lie four to six million eggs per lane? (laughs) Amazing, big, wonders big and small in this world that the Lord has made. Speaking of small, did you know that the average human body, the average human body has, guess how many atoms it's made up of? A lot is a better answer than I'm gonna give because it's seven octillion. Seven octillion. Oh yeah, Jay, sure, whatever's that. I'll tell you what seven octillion is. It's seven with 27 zeros after it. Kids, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Seven and then write 23 zeros. That's a lot of atoms, okay? That's all I know, a lot. There's a whole lot of atoms in us, but did you know that only one trillionth of an atom has any mass to it? any substance. So every atom, only one trillionth of it is mass of any sort. The rest of it is just flying energy as electrons move around these neutrons and protons and it's just energy and space between that energy, constantly moving at atomic level. So if you took all that kind of empty space out of, those, out of the atoms in our body, if you, if you drew all that empty space out, all that like swirling energy, if you drew it out to just that little bit of mass that's left, you would fit in the speck of a dust. And the entire human race could fit into a sugar cube. Why am I sharing all this? I'm sharing on this because on an atomic level, we are built of protons, neutrons, and electrons that are in constant motion, all this energy, all the time, moving all the time. That's what we are inside of us. And then on this galactic level, we have suns burning and planets spinning and solar systems soaring through space. There's all this energy everywhere we look, outside, inside, all this power in motion. And Romans 1 verse 20 says, all of it's there to reveal the almighty strength of our God. He is the power behind the power. He is creation's maker and sustainer. Romans 1 says God has eternal power, eternal power. So not just power, eternal power. That means he has infinite ability to do whatever he wants. The Bible says that one of God's names is El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He is awesome in strength and might. Job said, if there is a contest of strength, behold, he is the strong one. Psalm 62 declares, power belongs to God. Likewise, Nahum 1 teaches, the Lord is great in power. 
I mean, we could just go through the Bible and just list all these scriptures. Even at the end, in Revelation 19, John's revelation, he says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out. Here it is, it's at the end, this is what we're doing. What are we crying out? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. El Shaddai, God Almighty, he reigns. And when he exercises his power, God does so effortlessly. He has eternal power, infinite ability. It is no more difficult for our God to create a universe than it is for him to make a butterfly. I love how A.W. Tozer says it in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Since he has at his command all the power of the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power, I love this, all the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. That last, it's so expansive. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. Yesterday, I worked out with my kids. We did an exercise routine, and I did not feel like this through that. I got to the end, and you know, we're supposed to be doing burpees at the end, and I'm like, ah, ah. The kids are like, come on, Dad, you can do it. And I'm like, hey, you're not doing it. Come on. (sighs) (sighs) Some of them were trying to do it. I did not have endless resource from which to draw from. I could barely get my workout completed. And the Lord can do all that he wills, and it's no effort to him. (laughs) That is power. All power belongs to our God. His strength and ability are drawn from an infinite resource. He's limitless. And it's no wonder God, or David says in Psalm 63, oh God, you, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you to behold your power and your glory. Our God has infinite power and That is something of the point that Matthew is making in these chapters of eight and nine in his gospel, that Jesus wields this very divine power as he holds within himself divine authority. That's the point of these miracle stories in these couple chapters that we are studying right now. They reveal to us Jesus' eternal power and his divine nature. In fact, over in chapter nine, verse six, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority or power 
And that's really the whole issue with these stories. The healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the calming of the sea we're gonna look at today, the casting out of demons, the forgiving of sins, the raising of the dead, all of them testify to Jesus' divine authority and power. And so, this week, we're looking at a miracle that testifies to his power over the natural world, over creation and nature. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at his authority and power over the supernatural world as he commands demons and they obey him. And then the week after that, Lord willing, we'll look at his power even over where the two combine together in the place of sin, which we'll look at his authority over sin in a couple of weeks. So that's where we're headed, but today it's Jesus' authority over nature, and we want to look at this passage now. Let's give our attention to Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27. This is the holy and authoritative word of God. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? May the Lord now bless the preaching and the believing of his word. This is a familiar passage, a familiar story, and for all its drama, what we want to do is set our eyes on Jesus. We want to follow him through this story and see if we can't understand more of who he is. So we're going to look at six things that Jesus does in this story, six actions he takes. And the first is Jesus leads. The first is, the first thing Jesus does in this passage is Jesus leads. Look again with me at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now that's actually a really good description of a disciple right there. His disciples followed him. That's what disciples do. Where Jesus goes, disciples follow. Where he leads, we are in tout. And yet you'll remember from our study last week, this is all happening at the end of a busy day. Earlier in the day, Jesus had taught on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. Then coming down from the hillside, he had begun to heal people, and his power became known around, and more and more people were coming out to see him. And Matthew says in verse 18 that a crowd had gathered around Jesus, and you remember again what we learned last week, that we get excited about crowds. We think they're exciting and fun, but Jesus looks at a crowd gathering around him, and he becomes skeptical. He questions, why are they really gathered around him? What are their motives? And so Jesus usually does something or says something to begin to test the people's hearts, to find out what are they really looking for, and to sift out who are his true disciples. And that's what Jesus does here. 
Seeing the crowd forming, he orders his disciples, you know, not prepare for a long sermon, guys. I'm gonna launch back into this or get ready for some more healing because here we go. No, he says, instead, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's head out to the other side. All those who are with me, follow. Now, a point I didn't draw out last week, but it's worth, with, worth pointing out today. By going over to the other side of the lake, another thing Jesus is doing here is he's, he's leaving Jewish territory and he's heading into Gentile territory. It's a very symbolic moment. Uh, Jesus had come to save the nations. And so this is a big deal. Jesus is signaling, hey, my ministry is not here only for these crowds with the Jews. I'm heading to the Gentiles to do a ministry as there, uh, th- there as well. But this would be a real test for any Jew who would consider following him. He's not just saying, get in the boat and leave now. He's not just saying, don't prepare, don't get anything ready, don't say goodbye, leave your affairs, you gotta go now with me, we're leaving. He's doing that and he's saying, and we're going over to those who you consider are unclean. We're going to your enemies. Are you coming or not? And so last week we talked about how being Jesus' disciple means we put him first. That's the point of the passage that we looked at last week. There was these two would-be disciples. Were they going to put Jesus first in their life? Would they follow him wherever he led them? And it's the question he put to ask. And some of us are wrestling with that still from last week's sermon. You're wrestling. You hear Jesus calling you, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. And you've been wrestling. Lord, I don't want to lay this down and get in that boat. But I do, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. And I want you to see, Jesus getting in the boat and his disciples follow. Are you gonna follow? Are you following Jesus? If you need a little more help, let me hold this out for you. Who got to see what Jesus is about to do with the storm? Only those that got in the boat with him. You follow Jesus, and you're going to see some pretty amazing things. But you got to follow. You got to put him first. Thing number two we see Jesus do. Action number two. Jesus sleeps. Second thing he does, he sleeps. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Now to appreciate the significance of this little fact thrown in here that Jesus is sleeping, we need to appreciate the significance of this storm first. So, let me give you a little context here. The Sea of Galilee, which is really, it's really just a lake. It's not a very big body. It's got a big name, but it's actually just a little lake. So the Sea of Galilee, right, it sits about 608 feet below sea level. So it's a very low point in the terrain, okay? And then just a little north of it, you have Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon sits over 9,000 feet above sea level. So 9,000 feet above sea level, really high peak, snow-capped mountains, and then you've got down here, below sea level, 600 feet below sea level, 
um, the Sea of Galilee and this valley that connected them. And so what you would have is you would have these cold winds careening down off the slopes of Mount Hermon, down this valley, and they would slam into the warm air that was huddling over the Sea of Galilee. And this cold air slamming into this warm air and churning it all up and all that would produce these tremendous storms out of nowhere. You couldn't see them coming. They would just all of a sudden blow in. And so the Sea of Galilee was actually a very dangerous place. To this day, it's considered dangerous to, to sail on because you never know when these storms might swoop in. And so there the disciples are. It's probably evening, maybe nighttime. It's dark out. And Matthew says, behold. So it's, it's exclamation. Suddenly, watch out, unexpectedly, without warning, there arose a great storm on the sea. So no, not a typical storm that would have just blown in. And, oh yeah, we saw this one coming for a long time. No, this was a great storm. One of those that just blew in unexpectedly. In other translations, they describe it as a furious storm or a fierce storm. So this is no ordinary tempest. It was especially violent and especially dangerous. And the word Matthew uses for storm here is this word seismos, which we get the word seismic from. And it has to do with, it's used sometimes for storms, but also for earthquakes. And so the picture that he's painting here is that everything is just rocking and reeling, everything is just moving. They're getting thrown all around. The boat is getting tossed to and fro, and so the disciples are sure they're gonna perish. Matthew says the boat was being swamped by the waves. Mark uses this kind of warlike language. He says that the waves were breaking into the boat, so it's, it's like this assault on a stronghold with the enemies coming up over the edge. They're breaking in over the sides of the boat, over the walls. They're threatening to take it down. And, and friends, in all of this, there is significant symbolism, significant symbolism about the storms in your life, the violent ones that assault you, and you are prone to panic in them. When you feel that need that is so urgent, the situation is so dire, you're facing a health crisis, or you just lost your job, or your marriage is in great difficulty, or you have a child that's rebelling and, and causing havoc in the family. Maybe you're in great spiritual trouble. You feel under attack like Satan has just aimed himself at you, trying to devour you. Or maybe you feel like your sin has a hold on you, like it's got great chains wrapped around you and it's, it's pulling you under and you feel so desperate to get out but you can't get away from it, you're terrified. How can you escape? Where is Jesus in this storm? I mean, you follow Jesus long enough, like 10 minutes, and you're gonna start to feel that. Like, where is Jesus in this storm? Well, in the story here, he's asleep in the boat. <laughs> and that's how some of us can feel in storms, right? Like, Jesus, are you asleep through this? Are you missing what's happening here? Well, hold on. We're gonna see Jesus come to the rescue in just a minute, which we need to hear about and we need to know about, but let's not miss the fact that we're given this tidbit that he was asleep. Of what significance is that? Our whole goal here is to learn about Jesus. What does this teach us? 
it reveals to us something significant about Jesus, his humanity, which is to say, his humility. Listen, Jesus was fully God, as is being demonstrated in these passages, but he was also fully man. And he had just worked a long, hard day preaching a significant message, healing many and ministering to others, and Jesus needed sleep. And this should encourage us whenever we consider the one we are approaching for help in our trials. Not only is he able to deliver us, but he is also approachable by us. Remember Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, 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 no. But one who in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What does this do to us? Well, gives us confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why, because I've got one that understands what I'm in. I've got one that, under, I've got a high priest that knows what I'm going through. He's been there, he knows hard times. But now he's sitting on the throne of grace so I can go to him that I might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, it's significant that we're told that Jesus slept through the storm. It reveals to us his humility in taking on human form. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. And this emboldened us to approach him with confidence. He's not far off and some sovereign God who doesn't know what's going on, doesn't care, just kind of wound up the clock of life and left it go on the shelf. No, he's been in this situation. He knows. He cares. And he says, come all to me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, I will give you rest. And this leads to the next thing we see Jesus do here. Jesus listens. Jesus listens. This is a sweet little encouragement I think we can extract from verse 25. And they went and woke him. What did he do when he woke up? Well, he listened to them. They said, save us, Lord. We're perishing. The first action we see Jesus take in this trial is he's just listening. He's listening to the disciples as they panicked and crying out, but Jesus listens. They didn't know what to do. I mean, some of them were, several of them were experienced fishermen. They didn't know what to do. Not in a storm like this. But I appreciate their instincts. They went to Jesus. And this begs the questions, friend. Is that your instinct? To go to Jesus? When a tempest blows across your life, do you turn to Jesus? When you've had a bad day, I mean, just draw a bad day up in your head, you know, like uh, from this week. Bad day at work, a bad day with the kids. How did you deal with it? Was your impulse to turn to Jesus? Or was it, you know, we always harp on the same things because they're always the same thing for us, right? To take out the phone and just get busy looking at something on the phone, to turn on a movie and numb ourselves in a movie, to drown ourselves in a hobby, because what do we do? We drown ourselves in a hobby, to take up a nice drink to relax. Why? Because we take up a nice drink to relax. None of these things are sin in and of themselves. 
but where do you shelter in the storm? Back in 2020, at the onset of the pandemic, our culture took notice, rightly so, of the first responders. Those who are first to appear on a scene of of trouble. And that was right that we honored them, it's right that we acknowledge them, it's right for them. We need first responders. And what I want you to see in this part of the passage here is that Jesus is the first responder to your troubles. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever storm you're weathering, whatever sacrifice you're being called to make, go to Jesus with it. Run to Jesus, pray to your great high priest, cry out to him, say, save me, Lord, I'm perishing. And be assured, Jesus listens, Jesus hears you, cast your cares on him. And I just wanna say as a church, we are committed to helping each other turn to Jesus in prayer. That's why we're constantly encouraging families to be praying together. That's why in community group we take times to pray for one another. That's why your elders pray for you in our elders meetings. That's why we take time in our monthly prayer meetings to pray for one another, which happens to be this coming week and I hope you'll come and help us do what we're talking about right now, which is take our cares to him who listens. All right, well, that was Jesus listens. Let's turn now to the fourth thing we see Jesus doing here. Jesus questions. Jesus questions. We still haven't gotten to him dealing with the storm yet. There's more to see here. Verse 26, the first half. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. So Jesus' disciples, they came to him in desperation, and he uses that as an opportunity to prompt some kind of healthy self-examination. I don't think he's harshly child, or chiding them. You know, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? I don't think he's, you ever imagine how Jesus says things? Like, I thought about that, you know, like, why are you afraid? Why are you, why are you afraid? Oh, why are you afraid? No, that would be, why are you afraid? Like, you wonder how Jesus says these things. I don't know, they didn't tell us, so I guess it's not that important, but he does ask it. It's a piercing question. Friends, we have to understand, faith shows itself in trial. When all is going well in your life, we're in a season of prosperity, when it's all sunny and bright and rainbows and unicorns frolicking and all those wonderfully happy little things, Where's your faith? I mean, it's it's nearly invisible. You're not living by faith. All is going well. Faith is shown in trial when faith is needed. And I want you to notice this in this passage. This was something significant that stuck out to me. I'm convinced it's very significant in this passage. I want you to notice Jesus addressed his disciples before he addressed the storm. He addressed his disciples before he addressed the storm. And I think in doing so, it's showing us, it's signifying to us that what's more concerning than the storm outside assaulting them, what's more concerning than that is the storm of unbelief raging inside of them.
And this is where, friends, we must wrestle with the sovereignty of God in this passage. Just like these disciples, we have been called by Jesus for a particular purpose in this world. We've been called to Jesus, we are joined to Jesus by faith, we are married and united to him by faith, we've been caught into the purposes of God and into the destiny of God, and yet there are times when he puts, purposefully, puts you in the midst of severe storms, trials, afflictions, willed and directed by God. The old divines, the Puritans would call this the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. Great spiritual storms that break upon us, great physical storms that test us, great psychological storms in which we are led to feel helpless. Trials that acutely make us aware that we can do nothing And no matter how many years we've been following Jesus, that we are absolutely powerless in and of ourselves. God ordains terrible trials for us to weather. And yet Jesus is speaking to us today saying, why are you afraid? Oh, ye of little faith. You are in my providence. You are in the circle of my will. Friends, we speak of secondary causes that are out there that afflict us or whatever, but really there is only one ultimate will that is done. All things work according to the counsel of God's will, Ephesians 1.11. He is in control of every area of our lives. And yet you know with me, the Christian life is not one of plain sailing. It is not a life freed of trying storms. Jesus never promises that it would be. Friends, there are mysteries in God's providences that he will never answer in this life. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. God does not reveal everything to us here, why? Because we live by faith and not by sight. So you see, friends, the most important thing in every trial isn't first getting rid of the storm. The most important part in every trial is not losing your faith. That's the real issue, not losing faith. Our text today shows us that the mysteries of God's providences, the winds and the waves that he lets buffet against us and knock us all around, they're designed by God to get us to exercise faith. Not lose it. When everything is going well, faith is invisible. When the storms come, then we use it. And Job 5, verse 7, is this not true? He says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Do sparks fly upward? Yes, they do. And so every man, woman, and child is born to trouble in this world. This life is full of hardships. This is true of the Christian, and it's true of the non-Christian. We share that in common. 
But the great difference between us and them is through the storms and trials, through the disappointments and bereavements in this life, the Christian may believe that he has one grand answer for them all. Though we do not understand the mystery of each of them individually, we have one grand answer for all of them that God our God has promised through Jesus Christ to work all things together for our good for those who are called according to his purposes. Friends, we have, an encur- we, have every, we have every encouragement to trust God. Every encouragement, all his promises, all his past dealings with us, all that he gave for us in his son. Oh, he is such a trustworthy God. And so we need to say over and over again to ourselves what the old hymn writer has said, I graciously will teach thee the way that thou shalt go, and with my eye upon thee, my counsel make thee known. But be ye not unruly or slow to understand. Be thee not perverse, but willing to heed my wise command. You see, even in our blackest moments, God is working things for our good. And the devil, who's on the other side of that sea, and we're about to go confront next week, that devil wants to use the blackest moments of your lives to destroy you. But here's what our sovereign God will do. He will superimpose his will over Satan's so that it will not destroy you, but preserve your faith and grow you through it. We know this from Luke chapter 22. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What hope does Simon have against that? But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why does God take you through the storms that he does? Well, there is much about the mystery of his providence we do not know, but we do know this, that he is using those storms to purify your self-reliance, to get it out of you, and that your faith may persevere. All right, fifth action Jesus takes here. Fifth action, Jesus rebukes. Finally, we get to the storm itself. Second half of verse 26, then Jesus rose. I love that picture, Jesus standing up in this rocking and reeling boat. Rock and reel all you want, boat. The Lord of the boat is standing up now. Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Here it was a show of Jesus' raw and divine power. And it's interesting here though, it's an interesting thing to note, that the word translated rebuke is one Matthew usually uses to refer to what Jesus did to demons. He rebuked them. Again, we'll study that next week. But one wonders if this verb wasn't used by Matthew here to also show us that this was no normal storm. There was indeed a evil, spiritual, malign force opposing Jesus through this storm as he was headed to Gentile territory where he would free the demonized. Perhaps the prince of the power of the air, as Satan is called in scripture. 
had marshaled the winds to come against Jesus and his small little church, assaulting that boat. We don't know for sure, but I think it could be true. But the point here is not his power and authority over the supernatural, but his power and authority over the natural. And so he stands in the boat and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And Mark tells us, Jesus said, peace, be still. Or again, one of those ones I just roll over in my head again and again. How did he say it? How did he say it? You know, was it that? Peace, be still. Or was it peace, be still. Or is it just a whisper is all he needed? Peace, be still. I have no idea. I just love to think about it. Again, we don't need to know that. All we know is need to know is that he did say it. And instantly, not just a calm, but a great calm came over the sea, a total calm. I was talking to my kids about this last night, and I was talking about, you know like when you're in the bathtub, kids, and you make like, you start splashing all around, and you start making all these big waves, and they're, they're splashing all over the bathtub, and, and I come into the room, and I say, peace be still, because my floor is getting wet. And so they stop. They stop. But I don't have the power to make the waves stop. Right, the water in the bathtub is still sloshing all around as those waves work themselves out. But when Jesus speaks, peace be still, even the waves go calm. A great calm. The sea becomes as glass. And friends, when you can do that, that is power. We used to sing a song when I was growing up in church, whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or struggles or evil, whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace be still. Peace be still. Jesus' sovereignty shows itself in this stopping of this storm. The exercise of his absolute authority, all shall sweetly obey his will. And friends, how sweet it is to come to church today, to open our Bibles together, and be reminded so clearly that even the fiercest storms in our life do not hold sovereignty over us. We could go out and find the most terrifying natural disasters in the world, and yet we would be reminded, even they have a master they must obey. And that master, that sovereign, that Lord of lords, even though he describes himself in verse 20 here as having nothing, still he commands everything and they obey. So if you arrived here today and you feel troubled about anything, from racism to socialism, from unemployment to heart disease, from Russia to rebellious children, realize that this world only seems like a storm that will drown us. But wickedness will not prevail. They all shall sweetly obey his will. So whatever storm is threatening to swamp you right now, let me encourage you. Turn to the one David turned to in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Turn to Jesus and fear not. Be not afraid. Instead, resolve with the psalmist who states in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Recall the promises of God. 
Matthew 28, Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and then he promises, behold, I am with you always and to the end of the age. Jesus is with you in that boat. Jesus is with you in that storm. And no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. And let me just remind you of one last point about this storm. Just one more thing we have to see here about this storm that Jesus rebukes. Not only is this a wonderful reminder that Jesus can calm any tempest in our life, but we have to see here also that this storm is a type. It is a forerunner of the greatest storm we will ever and have ever encountered. Listen, the most terrifying of all tempests, the most violent of all storms, was that which was stirred up by Adam's revolt against God. A storm whose ominous rumblings were heard over the Garden of Eden and have spread across history and time. Here's the storm of sin that comes down on all of our lives with its winds that buffet against us and waves that break against us. That is a terrible storm to be sure, but even worse, just like those great winds came rushing down Mount Hermon onto the Sea of Galilee, so the divine winds of judgment from God on high come rushing down upon us in our sin. That is the most terrible sin to have, break, or terrible storm to have breaking out over us, is the judgment of a holy God. One, a storm we would be lost in unless we too cry out like the disciples, save me, Lord, I'm perishing. And oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, though the master of all storms. At Calvary on a hill called Golgotha, the Son of Man is lifted up, hung upon a cross, where he endured the raging of divine wrath. He took the waves, he bore the storm, poured out against, his, against sin by God, his own Father. And there with his arms outstretched, Jesus endured the most terrific and terrible of all storms until he could say unto that storm as well, it is finished. His father's wrath was satisfied. The temple veil was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, it was seismos again. And then there was a great calm, the great calm. The raging storm of God's holy judgment against our vile sin was over. You see, only Christ and only his work and his word on Calvary can still the mighty tempest of a holy God against a sinful people. Only the saving work of Jesus Christ and his calming words, it is finished, can speak peace into the heart of a holy God and can speak peace into the hearts of sinful men and women. And friends, if Jesus can still that storm, then he can still any storm. Action number six, last one. We'll close down with this. Jesus amazes. Jesus amazes. Verse 27 says, and the men marveled. They were amazed, saying what? 
What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? (laughs) What a man! What a mystery! What a marvel! Friends, this passage is not just an inspiration for us in our trials. This passage is not just an example for us of what we can do by faith. The whole point of this passage is to show us that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he is without equal, that he is fundamentally unique in his power. The whole point of this passage is to lead us to marvel at, to be amazed by, to worship the God-man who is Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to the waves and they obey him. He wields divine power. In scripture, it says that the sea obeys God and obeys God alone. Job 39 says, it is God who sets limits to the sea, that it is God who says, thus far you you shall come and no farther. Psalm 67, it is God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, it is God who rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, he stills them. Friends, hear me when I say, when our faith is tried by trial, what we most urgently need to know What are the questions you ask in a trial? Here's what you ask. You say, why, 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 God? And then you say, will you take this, God? Will you take this away? And we pine after the answers. But I'm telling you, what you most urgently need to know is not why or when or how you'll be delivered. What you most urgently need to know is who Jesus is. Knowing Jesus is is what strengthens our faith. So what a privilege today we have had to study him, the sovereign one, El Shaddai, who is Jesus. And it reminded he is in full control. Friends, there's a, back in the days of of sailing ships, there was this practice they had where these giant ships would come into the mouth or come to the mouth of a harbor and if if the water was not absolutely perfectly calm, it was too dangerous for the ships to sail into the mouth of the harbor. It would be too dangerous for them to navigate those those uh, tides, and so what they would do is they would send what was called a forerunner out ahead of them, a smaller vessel that could navigate the mouth of that, that um, harbor, and on that forerunner boat would be carried the anchor to the ship. And so the forerunner would navigate that dangerous mouth and would go into the harbor and would find a place to lay the anchor for the ship, not on sandy ground, but on bedrock. And those on the ship would trust by faith that the forerunner had found that solid ground and that with their anchor firmly placed, they could pull themselves safely into the harbor. 
through the choppy waters, even through the storms. Friends, Jesus is that forerunner for us. And he has gone through the fiercest storms and entered heaven itself to lay the anchor on the bedrock of eternity. And by faith, we follow him and reel ourselves in, trusting the strength of him going before of us till finally we reach our harbor home in heaven itself. Friends, that is what God's exclusive sovereignty is all about. Jesus is our anchor through life's storms. He is our solid rock. The sovereignty of God exercised through a caring and compassionate Savior. Jesus controls every area of our life, every event that happens to us, everything, every hair on our head, every man, woman, and child, every nation, principality, and power. There is not a thing in this world that is not under his control. The government rests upon his shoulders. So why are you afraid, oh you of little faith? Turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. Let's pray. Well, our great and sovereign one, we come before you and we we bow the knee before so one great and marvelous. And Jesus, how badly we need you in life's storms. We get confused with the thinking of this world where we just set all our hopes in getting out of the storm. How do I get out? I want to get out. How do I get out? God, get me out. Deliver me. Get me out of this. Get me out of this. Get me out of this. It's like being on a treadmill. We just get nowhere like that. But Abraham's faith grew Romans tells us, as he gave glory to God. Our faith grows, Jesus, as we set our eyes upon you and we glorify you through the trial. We strengthen our faith by holding on to you and all that you are and all that you promise to be and all that you promise to do. So for those in just a a severe, significant trial today, a storm, I pray, Lord, that today something of Jesus, I pray that you would just have opened their eyes to see you. And for even of us with little storms, bathtub storms, (laughs) we would set our eyes on you. And for all of us, knowing that days of storms will come, that when we leave here today, Jesus is saying, we're going to the other side. We're going out on mission. Here we go. And that there will be trial and trouble this week. May we take this passage, this truth, may we take you, Jesus, with us and turn to you and be not afraid. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.